Okay, I want it to be something that always comes to your mind and to your lips from this moment until the day you die. He wrote that the most foundational thing to see from the Bible about marriage is that it is God's doing. Okay, so let's think about foundations. Let's think about your home. Think about the building you work in. A lot of you are builders. Think about how important the foundation is, the bedrock on which uh, your home is built upon. That foundation, the most foundational thing from the Bible about marriage is that it is God's doing, okay? And then, kind of the ceiling or the roof of that, fa- of that home or that structure, the most ultimate thing to see from the Bible about marriage is that it is for God's glory, okay? So, most foundational thing is that it's God's doing, and the most ultimate thing is that it's God for God's glory, God never gives us permission to redefine marriage or to discard marriage in a way that would suit us. It exists ultimately for him. And until you understand that everything about your home and your marriage is for him, your family will have a virus, okay? Your family will have worse than the coronavirus. I mean, think about how bad the coronavirus was and then multiply that by a billion, okay? That's your home without the most foundational thing and the most ultimate thing at its center, okay? If you think of the mountaineers that climb Mount Everest, you know, or that climb uh, the, the Denali, you know, and they fasten themselves as they go with their, their uh, crampon shoes and their ice axes and they begin to hit the summit of those slopes, they are tethered in by a rope, okay? That rope keeps them from certain demise, And what is the rope of uh, the summit of marriage for all of us who are climbing it? That rope that will hold us in securely is the glory of God. Leslie Newbigin, I believe you have this in your notes, writes that in a mutual relationship between two human beings, we know that it can be sustained only if both acknowledge something that has authority over them And if each trusts the other to acknowledge this, okay? So within our marriages, there's a little bit of trust that goes on, a little bit of mutual trust, especially for those who are married within the church and call themselves Christians. And it's something that needs to be taught in pre-marriage classes, but it's not taught. Um, And that is that your marriage exists for the glory of God, okay? And it exists under the umbrella of the authority of God. And so both of you in your home need to make a covenant with one another again, probably a better vow than anything that I had written in night. That covenant is, hey, we are not our own. We've been bought with a price. There is someone who has authority over us, and it's the God of creation. And there is... Uh, purpose that is bigger than the two of us and that is the glory of the God of creation and you know what honey I trust you to walk in pursuing that and I ask you to trust me to walk in pursuing that and let's help each other walk in pursuing that okay so let's go to Genesis chapter 1 we're going to look at the most foundational thing as Piper said that it is God's doing 
Genesis 1. Initially, the Lord said in creation, let there be light. God saw that there was light. He takes pleasure from it. And then he says, it is good. Okay. And then in verses 9 and 10, uh, the Lord created waters under the heavens, gathered together in one place. Dry land appeared. Dry land was called earth. The gathered together water he called seas. And God saw that it was good. In verses 11 and, uh, through 12, let the earth bring grass and herb and seed and fruit trees and all of those wonderful things. And when the earth brought those things forth, God saw that it was good. In verse 16, God made two great lights, a greater light to rule the day, a lesser light to rule the night. So he he made the sun and the moon and he saw that it was good. In verse 20 through 23, he created living creatures, birds flying, um, and, uh, Sea creatures in the sea, living things and beasts that move. God saw that it was good. In verse 24, let the earth bring forth living creatures, cattle, creeping things, beasts of the earth. Accordion's kind of jumped ahead a little bit there. When he created those things, he saw that it was good. And so when you read Genesis and that account and all those different things that he created, it always ends with, it is good. And what it is, is poetry, okay? You got to hear the poetry. Create this and this and this, it is good. Create this and this and this, it is good this and this and this it is good so there's poetry there god speaks it comes into existence and then god is satisfied and so there's the pinnacle of creation the great divine fanfare before he creates it he shows it his great consideration in making something but there's something that god made that he gave extra consideration toward and that is man and when god creates man check this out God almost jeopardizes his own glory because he says, I'm going to make something that is going to represent me to the earth. And don't worry, it'll go great. (laughs) You know, so he says it in Genesis trinitarily among the father, the son and the Holy Spirit. When he says in Genesis 126, let us make you see the plurality there let us make man in our image according to our likeness let them have dominion over the fish of the sea over the birds of the air over the cattle the earth let every creeping thing that creeps on the earth so god created man in his own image in the image of god he created a male and female he created them then god blessed them and said to them be fruitful and multiply fill the earth and subdue it have dominion over the fish of the sea over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves on the earth And then if you jump down to verse 31, then God saw everything that he had made, and indeed, it was very good. So remember the poetry? God said, I'm going to make this, so he made that, it was good. I'm going to make this, he made that, it was good. So on and so forth, until here he says, I'm going to make something special, hold on. We are going to make him in our image. He's going to represent us to the world. He's going to go and be fruitful and multiply and represent us throughout the entire world. Let's do it. So the Holy Spirit and Jesus and the Father make man in his image and they said not it was good but that it was very good right so that's beautiful you gotta love that then as you continue to read the story something comes up that causes like the little record scratch noise to happen in the story it's like because then the lord is like wait there's something that's not good anybody know what that was it is not good that man should be alone okay so creation keeps on going when the lord sees that there's one deficiency in creation it's found in genesis 2:18. so i'm going to make a helper 
compar- comparable to him. Now, what this is not saying is that it's uh, not a good idea to be single, okay? Uh, we know from 1 Corinthians in the New Testament that to be single can actually be a wonderful avenue for world missions, all right? Uh, it could be a calling from the Lord. It's not a less valuable estate to be in, but it's a high estate. Jesus was single and accomplished a lot. Um, but what it is saying is that it's not good for a man to be solitary, okay? It's not good for a man to live by himself. Uh, even among the Godhead, there's community. And you read about it in John chapter 17. Jesus talks about the wonderful friendship that the Father and he had before the foundation of the earth, all right? Uh, so even within the Trinity, there's that friendship and community. And so if you're a Christian, you're not called to be a Christian off by yourself, living out in the church of the woods of the Ochakos or whatever. That's not a biblical form of the church. You're to be a part of the church. Doesn't matter if you're in a church building, but you're to be a part of the church family. We're saved into community with one another. God says it's not a good idea for a person to be solitary. Now, keep in mind, at this point in creation, Adam doesn't know he's alone. He doesn't know that there's any other option, that there's anything else out there. He's just cruising around, having a great old time, you know, uh, hanging out with all the animals. And in order to help God, or for God to help Adam realize his predicament, he puts Adam through what Ray Ortland called was a zoological exercise, okay? Anybody think of what that zoological exercise was? It was naming the animals, right? And so Ray Ortland said, God did not immediately create this helper, but he paraded the animals before the man for the man to name him. Why? Because the man did not yet see the problem of his aloneness. And so God translated the man's objective aloneness into a feeling of personal loneliness by setting him to this task. In serving God, the man encountered his own need, okay? So he looks at an animal, and he says, oh, here's this animal, and it's going to go reproduce, and it looks like this, and it eats ants, so I'm going to call it an ant eater, you know, and so on and so forth. And he goes through all this, and giraffe, and, you know, Johnny could totally have a great time talking about the the genus phylum and species or whatever, you know, stuff that's way over my head. I'm probably not even using it in the right context. You're like, that's talking about rocks you know i don't know but um but as the final animal kind of plotted off you know after getting its name adam's sitting there and he's like ah kind of lonely (laughs) you know they all have each other and i don't have anyone okay and so in genesis uh 2:21, the lord caused a deep sleep to fall on adam and he slept took out one of his ribs, and he closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. Okay? Now, John Piper says at this point that marriage is God's doing. Okay? Because he personally took the dignity of being the first father to give away the bride. Anybody here love that movie, Father of the Bride? You know, I had two sisters, no brothers growing up. So we watched a few chick flicks. And I don't know if uh, Father of the Bride counts as that, but probably. Um, But Steve Martin, he's hilarious, right? So movie, in fact, pretty, I don't know if it was like the week of our marriage or what, but we all gathered together with your family and we watched Father of the Bride. And it was a great sentimental movie night, you know. Um, But the real and ultimate true and better Father of the Bride is the Father, right? He... 
just took great thought and care to create woman from man and then presents the woman to the man. And when Adam sees her, he said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. This is the first recorded words of a human being in the Bible. Did you know that? So we're already there. First recorded words of a human being. And they were poetic and they were worshipful. Okay. They expressed the joy of the first man receiving the gift of the first woman. He essentially says, this creature alone, Father, out of all the other creatures, this one, the last one, meets my needs for a companion. She alone is my equal, my very flesh. I identify with her. I love her. I'll call her woe man. Woe man. Because she came out of man. I believe it's in your notes that then it says from Ray Ortland, the man perceives the woman not as his rival, but as his partner, not as a threat because of her equality with himself, but as the only one capable of fulfilling his longing within. I like that. I've taught this series a few times, but reading through it and processing it, I was like, I got to throw that in their notes because how many of us as husbands, we're going through life and you know, and, and our wife just like speaks up to help us out, you know, speaks up some correction into us for some things that we're doing that's needed. We need correction and we get all bent out of shape and bitter and, you know, just, you know, the fight ensues and this and that. And, and, you know, with the first thought of the wife, Adam was never like bent out of shape, you know, and of course this is pre-fall, you know, but he's just like, you know what? I'm just so stoked that you're right there with me, equal with me. You're my partner. I'm not threatened by your equality, that you're so precious and valuable, and you're also made in the image of God. Like, I got a good thing going here with you, is essentially what he's saying here. In his poetry, Adam captures Eve's equality. That's in your notes. Adam's poetry captures Eve's equality to him. We live in a day and age of equality. Everyone cares about equality. And that's a good thing because God cares about equality. And in a sense, husband and wife, man and woman are equal. They are both made in the image of God. When you go back to that passage, let us make them in the image of God or him in the image of God. It says that they made him in the image of God. And then it says male and female, he made them. So both man and woman are made in the image of God. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. And so there's equality, equal in worth, equal in value. So look at your wife and just look at her and just be like, she is totally 100% equal to me in awesomeness, okay, in value, in splendor, um, and in worth, okay? And at the same time, Adam's poetry also expresses her distinction from him. Distinction means that there are differences, okay? I'm man, ish, in the Hebrew, ish, you know? And she is, whoa, man, isha, okay? In the Hebrew, okay? So there's equality, and you kind of have a little section where you can write about some of the equality that we see and a little bit of the distinction, Equality in that she's from my body, she has my rib, we go together, okay? In Genesis 2.18, God said, I'll make him a herable, or I'm sorry, a herable, a helper comparable, okay? 
I'm going to make her a comparable, which comparable means like able to be like that one. Okay. So uh, she's from my body. She has my rib. We go together, but we're different in that there's a distinct function in my relationship to her. We're equal because in every way we're spiritually equal. She's an image bearer also, and she stands face to face with me. But we're distinct and different because we have functions that are not interchangeable, okay? There's equality stressed in that Eve is created from Adam, but there's distinct function in relationship to Adam stressed in that she was created for Adam. So she's from Adam and she's for Adam, which I didn't put it in your notes, but you might jot down 1 Corinthians 11, 8 and 9. For man is not from woman, but woman from man. Nor was man created for the woman, but woman for the man. So do you see the distinction there? She is from the man and she's for the man, not vice versa. Uh, There's a tension given to this now so that later on in the next couple weeks, we'll be able to appreciate the division of labor that's established prior to sin's introduction into the world, okay? Um, Puritan Matthew Henry, in your notes, wrote this. The woman was made of a rib out of the side of Adam, not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. How awesome that the Lord chose the rib, huh? I mean, it does speak something, and some of the greatest commentators, like a Matthew Henry Puritan preacher, note that thing. Genesis chapter 2, verse 24 It moves on to say, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. Maybe your translation says, and cleave to his wife. It's the good old leave and cleave, okay? If you're a husband who hasn't left your family yet and is still owned by mom and dad rather than owned by your wife, you're in an unhealthy place. And the same is true vice versa. Um, there's a separation, there's a severance that needs to happen. You have one of the most intimate relationships in the world with your mother, and there's a moment in the covenant where you are separated from that intimate relationship, and it'll never be that same degree, and you're put into a new intimate relationship with your wife, okay? And, And you begin to cleave to that wife, or to hold fast to your wife. And Genesis chapter 2, 24 says, you shall become one flesh. Jesus quotes this in Matthew chapter 19, and Jesus says, God said this, okay? Even though Genesis chapter 2 appears to be Moses writing it, that the leave and cleave passage, Jesus says that it was actually God who said it. God said this, Jesus affirms, it is God that you be joined to your wife and become one flesh, joined to the wife. When you are one flesh with your wife and with your husbands, it shows that there's a sacred covenant rooted in covenant commitments that stand against every storm. When you make the covenant as long as we both shall live, 
you are affirming Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, that you've left your mom and you've cleft, cleaved to your wife, and that there's no severance allowed. Ephesians 5.31 says, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but speak concerning Christ in the church. We're going to come back to that later. It's key uh, to this session. But even Paul the Apostle quotes Jesus. Jesus quotes Moses. And we find out it's the Lord anyways. But that there is a leaving and a cleaving and a becoming one flesh. In creation, sovereign design of the Lord God, in marriage... God made two, I'm sorry, I jumped ahead just a little bit. In creation, God made two people out of one person, okay? So there was only one Adam, and he took that rib, and he made two out of one. But in marriage, what happens? He makes one out of two. I'm not a mathematician. I don't quite know how I can't do the formula like a beautiful mind on a clear chalkboard with the white marker thing. But it's God's doing, okay? And isn't that amazing, though? I'm going to make two out of one, and then I'm going to make one out of two. You know? Um, God's smart. I'm not. Okay? But just as it was God who took the woman from the flesh of man, it's God who in each marriage ordains and performs the uniting call of making one flesh. That removes from man the power to destroy it. Or the call to destroy it. In marriage, it's the giving up of yourself to have a shared existence with your spouse. Two people brought together for mutual love, encouragement, support, companionship, even procreation. All of that is secondary to bringing God glory. The Pharisees tested Jesus, and so he went back to Genesis 2.24. He says, you know, don't you know the scriptures? It's written, God made one flesh out of them. And at the end of the passage, Matthew chapter 19, verse 6, he says, Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Who designed marriage? God. Who was the father of the bride? Who gave away the bride? God. Okay? Who created one from two? God. And so what Jesus says is, what God has done, what God has joined together, let not man separate that. There's an interesting uh, vocabulary in the Greek here. What the Greek is saying here is, what God has joined together, stop separating. That's what it is. It seems a little more like suggestive, like it's a good idea when you read it in the, just the English, like, hey, what God's joined together, don't let man separate it, come on, you know. But when you read it in the Greek, it's God joined it together, God designed it, God brought it together, stop separating it. It's corrective. It's a rebuke. He's talking to the Pharisees who had any reason they wanted to to divorce their wives. They had two different rabbis that presented all these different ways to divorce your wife. One was literally, if she burnt your food, get rid of her. Okay? She's not as attractive as she was on the wedding day, doesn't please you, get rid of her. 
And Jesus says, stop it. You're making up all kinds of different reasons why you think you can get rid of your wife. What God has joined together, let not man separate. Piper said, when a couple speaks their vows and consummates their vows with sexual union, it is not man or woman or pastor or parent who's the main actor. God is. God joins a husband and a wife into a one flesh union. God does that. God does that. The world does not know this, which is one of the reasons why marriage is treated so casually. And Christians often act like they don't know it, which is one of the reasons marriage in the church is not seen as the wonder that it is. Guys, we live in 2021, which is something like 60 years after the sexual revolution of the 60s. The late Betty Friedan, the feminist, said that marriage has existed for the benefit of men and has been legally sanctioned method of control over women. We must work to destroy it. The end of the institution of marriage is a necessary condition for the liberation of women. Therefore, it is important for us to encourage women to leave their husbands and not to live individually with men. All of history must be rewritten in terms of oppression of women. We must go back to ancient female religions like witchcraft. Does that sound familiar at all to the day and age that we're living in? Gloria Steinem, famous feminist. For the sake of those who wish to live in equal partnership, we have to abolish and reform the institution of legal marriage. Okay, so these are the heroes of the world of our day. These are the champions of equity and equality of the worldview that is out there outside of the church today. And they are saying, get rid of marriage. We've got to rewrite it all to show how God done screwed up, okay? And we're learning tonight, God didn't screw up. God put great thought into it. He put great care into it. We're going to see over the next four weeks after tonight uh, how in God's intention, the roles and the functions of marriage are not meant to be tyrannical, not meant to be domineering, and not meant to be subversive. There's actually a beauty in it that causes a great aroma and a fragrance of Christ to the whole world. It's a great question that Piper asked in the midst of all that. He says, in what ways do you have any right to stand up against such a thing as God's design? The church makes the error in approaching marriage sociologically rather than theologically. So we're coming at it these weeks theologically. It's that rope that holds us to the mountain as we climb the summit of marital bliss. It's the rope of God's glory. It was Bruce Springsteen that wrote a song, The Tie That Binds. There's also an old Christian hymn, The Tie That Binds. Blessed be the tie that binds. What's the tie that binds? It's God's glory. What's the tie that binds our marriage and our home together? It's God's glory. What did Adam do when he saw his first wife? He bust forth in poetic praise in worship. Remember, most foundationally, marriage is the doing of God. Most ultimately, marriage is the display of God. It's a work of God. And so this brings us to, I believe, part two, maybe in your notes there. Uh, At some point, I don't have a copy of them, so I'm kind of like going off of, just feel the flow, feel the flow of those notes. I'm sure it's spot on. 
marriage being the work of God. The reason there's so much glory in marriage is because there's so much of God in marriage. There in your notes, it says the biblical narrative is it pains to point out God's dynamic role in every step of the first union. First of all, God identifies a deficiency. Okay? So God, he's just, he's sitting back and he's thinking, he's inventing this thing called marriage and just with great thought sees there's a deficiency. The Lord God said, it's not good that man should be alone. Secondly, he proposes a solution. A light bulb appears over God's head and he's like, ping! You know, and he says, I will make a helper comparable to him. Thirdly, he demonstrates the need bringing all the beasts to man to see what he would call them. Fourthly, he executes a plan, takes the man's ribs and makes it a woman. And finally, he presents his handiwork. And he shows the woman to the man, and he says, how do you like that? Do you like that? I made that just for you. No other work of creation is reported in such detail. Naturally, we want to ask, for what cause shall a man be united to his wife And the context of the creation account supplies the answer because of everything God has done to form the union, because of his involvement in every stage of its development, because of the heavy allotment of glory he's invested in this partnership. Here's the second principle of marriage that's in your, that we marry for the glory of God. We're going to take a quick break. Like, I'm talking five minutes. I want you to grab some water. I want you to get a couple more treats on your plate. Use the bathroom real quick. We're going to come back, and uh, we're going to kind of speed through the second uh, half uh, concerning the glory of God and the image of God. Okay? Sound good? All right. Intense yet? I think so. Okay. Second principle of marriage and matrimony is... The glory of God. So, number one was the design of God, the sovereign design of God. Secondly here, the glory of God. The glory is the tie that binds. The blessing of a union cemented in God's glory are manifold. First of all, such a marriage will be invulnerable to the vacillating circumstances of life, Tim Savage says in his book, No ordinary marriage. For many couples, change threatens marital harmony. When time steals away youthful features of a wife or produces hormonal swings and unpredictable emotions, husbands may be tempted to look elsewhere for more attractive and predictable companionship. When the stresses of work erode a husband's self-respect, and diminish his capacity for uh, sensitivity, a wife may be tempted to look further afield for her encouragement. But this will be the case only if couples focus on the oscillating drama of either feminine beauty or masculine strength. If instead we cling to the glory of God as the rope that secures us together, those fluctuating circumstances of life will far from destabilize our marriage, provide a grounds for a deeper bond. And in your notes, it's because 
The glory of God is stronger in its capacity to bind us together than circumstances are in capacity to divide. I'm going to say that again. The glory of God, when we are all about bringing God glory, there is such a work of the Holy Spirit that works there. It's stronger and has the ability to keep us together much more strong than those oscillating circumstances have strength to split us apart. When we take aim at the glory of God as husbands and wife, we're consumed by something so big that synergy happens in our home. Synergy happens. Working together, it's greater than being alone. We begin to climb enthusiastically to very exciting heights and vistas on that climb of marital, towards marital bliss. Inside of our second point comes the third point, and that marriage is made in the image of God. It's made in the image of God for God's glory. We'll see this in this series. We glorify God when we reproduce a likeness of who He is. That was our creation mandate in Genesis. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, rule over the creatures. In that creation mandate, as we are fruitful and multiply, we go out and reproduce a likeness of who he is. Theologians call this the doctrine of the Imago Dei. Okay? And it speaks of the doctrine of the image of God. Out of all the creatures in the universe, man is the only creature made in the image of God. The fact that man is made in the image of God means that man is like God and represents God. The meaning of Genesis 1.26 was that God planned to make a creature similar to himself. The word image, salem in the Hebrew, and likeness, image and likeness, refer to something that is similar but not identical to the thing it represents an image of. Have you ever taken a picture of a beautiful mountain view, you know, or whatever, and you go to show it to your friend, and they're like, eh, and you, and you look at it, and you're like, well, the image doesn't do it justice, you know, or something like that. It's like, it's like it, they get the general idea, but it's just reflecting something that's just like far greater than the image could ever do itself. So, the word image can also be used of something that represents something else, like the reflection in a mirror. We are like mirrors, right, created to reflect the glory of God. Do you ever say the old, you know, come back when you're on a fight in the playground, you know, and you're like, I'm the rubber and you're the glue and whatever you say bounces off me and sticks to you, you know, or whatever. Well, similarly, you know, like, we are mirrors, and whenever anyone glories in who we are, or what we've done, or what we're up to, we just reflect it back to the Lord. We just say, hey, all the glory goes to the Lord. Praise the Lord. We just want to, we want to reflect the Lord to you, and we want to bounce your praise up to Him. Okay? That's this doctrine of the Imago Dei. 
Now, the fall in Genesis and the sinful condition throughout humanity shattered that mirror. Every man, woman, and child is created in the image of God. They're like a mirror, but sin shatters that mirror and distorts that reflection. But when someone is born again and becomes a Christian and is given a new heart, that, that mirror is assembled again and those cracks are sealed and we begin to reflect once again the glory of the Lord to the world. <clears throat> In Genesis chapter 5 verse 3, we see a, a mentioning of image in that Adam lived 130 years and begot a son in his own likeness after his image. Okay? It's the same words that are used in creation. Image and likeness. And he named him Seth. Okay? So Adam created. He was fruitful and he multiplied and he begot something from his own image. When we speak of image being produced... Image and likeness refer to every way a man is like his creator, okay? So we are made in the image of God in every way that we're like God. And our children are made in the image of us in every way that they're like us. Think about your children. It's so funny. I can look at your kids and I can look at them like, oh, she looks just like her mom. He looks just like his dad or vice, you know, and all that. And they act and they talk and their voice and all of that, you know. And why? Because they were made in your image, Okay, scripture doesn't show us every way Seth was like Adam in complexion, temperament, athletic abilities. Did he have a sense of humor? Did he have Adam's baby blue eyes or a tendency to fall into sin very fast? Right. That list would be way too restrictive in all the ways that Seth was like Adam. All the ways Seth was like Adam are the areas that he was made in Adam's image. All the ways that we are like God, our Father, are all the ways we are made in His image. So let's look at some of the attributes of God. Some of them we share with God, some of them we don't share. Here's some unshared attributes. I'm going to go through these very fast, okay? It's a whole other doctrine study in and of itself that we do in our school of ministry. Here's some unshared, incommunicable attributes. Number one, uh, eternal Infinite, independent, omniscient. Uh, omniscient means all-knowing. We're not all-knowing, okay? Omnipresent means he's everywhere. We're not everywhere. Omnipotent. That means God is all-powerful. We're made in his image, but we're not all-powerful. Immutable. God never changed. We change all the time, right? Sovereign. He's sovereign we're not sovereign, okay? So those are just some things that we don't share with him, even though we're made in image. Here's some things that are shared or communicable attributes. Spiritual. He's spiritual. We're spiritual. Holy. He's holy. He makes us holy. Righteous. These are things that are not inherent to ourselves, but they're things that he shares with us and gives us. Loving. God is love. He gives us love to give to others. Good. True, merciful, long-suffering, beautiful, gracious, jealous, desirable, sacrificial. By the way, I can always share my notes with you if there's something you're trying to write down. You're like, what was that? 
I remember on my wedding day, my good friend Chris Cross, he was in my wedding, and he came and he said, hey, I just want a little time with you before you go get married. And he said, you need to understand, your wife is beautiful, but she's not the source of beauty. Your wife is gracious, but she's not the source of grace. You know, and he just kind of listed off many attributes, and he's like, you've got to be gracious and merciful to your wife and know that she shares these attributes with the Lord. It's only as you keep bringing her before his presence that she's going to be shining those attributes all the more, okay? And I totally listened to what he said, and I've done it very good to this day. Anyways, there are moral traits that we share with the Lord, spiritual traits that we share with the Lord, mental traits. We have the ability to learn and to reason. Our complex, abstract languages sets us apart from animals. We have an awareness of a distant future. He's put eternity in our hearts. We have the complexity of emotional feelings. We have relational traits. There's the depth of interpersonal harmony, just like within the Trinity. And I repeat it again because it's important. Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit all have had relationship and friendship and community and communion with one another since before the eternity ever was a, a thing. Okay? It's out of our mind's comprehension. We, and as they have a depth of interpersonal harmony, man is able to have that as well. And he's able to have that within marriage. It reflects the Trinity within marriage as we have the same importance but different roles, even as we see that within the Trinity. Their senses and movements and the ability to create and to bear children and to multiply. Jesus himself was created, or I shouldn't say he was created. In fact, that's definitely false doctrine, okay? Jesus was not created. Uh, But when Jesus was begotten and was born, he came as the only, the image of the invisible God. Okay, so as he came here, when you see Jesus, you're seeing the Father, okay? Uh, It's a whole deep study on the Trinity, also another doctrinal uh, excursus that we could go on, but we're not tonight. I say all of these things to say that we've been created in the image of God to reflect God. We're like God in all of these ways because in all the ways that David Newberger or Taryn Pennington, you know, or Galen Carter, any one of you are created to reflect God and you're like God, marriage is created in the exact same way. Okay, there are so many ways that marriage is created in the image of God to reflect God. It's like God. The relationship among marriage and the roles and the functions within marriage, these are uh, aspects that reflect the divine creation and the divine glory. Just look at your paper there at Ephesians 5, 22 uh, through 27. And we're going to look at this. Uh, I can't recall if it's next week or the week after. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he's the savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. So do you notice there in in those sentences the, um, the metaphor that marriage is? Do you notice the word as, right? As Christ, okay? So do you see the relationship between the husband and the wife is as Christ is with his bride, the people within the church, okay? Uh, Savage says something that's helpful in that that might put together for us. He says, submission represents a call 
And I think this is in your notes. Submission represents a call to wives to give to their husbands what belongs to the wives by right. Fully equal to their husbands, godly wives choose to put the needs of their husbands before their own. They're not subordinate, but with God's help, they willingly subordinate themselves. It is the volitional aspect of subordination that makes it so revolutionary. It is also what makes it so exalting. It, it was the willing submission of Jesus that paved the way for the power of heaven to invade what would otherwise have been the unremarkable existence of a Galilean carpenter. The humility of Jesus unto death precipitated an outpouring of blessing that continues to this day. So, Savage just so greatly helps that metaphor, helps us comprehend the metaphor that submission reflects the story of the gospel and that Jesus, who is equal to the Father in value and in beauty and in worth, voluntarily submitted himself to the Father's will to be a part of this rescue plan to save the world from their sin. And marriage, when there's submission between a wife towards her husband, and also mutual submission, uh, that's another part of it all, it reflects that wonderful story of what Jesus has done for the church. And then as you would go on from 25 through 27, it's the same thing with the husband toward the wives, and you see that word as Christ. It's the same synonym. Uh, and uh, verse 32 tells us that it's all a great mystery. I'm not even talking about marriage. I'm talking about Jesus and the church. Okay? Why was man created? Why was he created in the image of God? The most ultimate thing, to quote Piper at the beginning of your notes, for the glory of God. We're going to wrap up here with just a couple things from Wayne Grudem in his doctrine book, Biblical Theology. When Wayne Grudem is talking about the Imago Dei, that we're created in the image of God, he says this. This fact guarantees that our lives are significant. You ever wonder if, you, if it matters that you're even here? The fact that you're made in the image of God shows that God has great care for you and that your life is significant. So this fact guarantees that our lives are significant. When we first realize that God did not need to create us and does not need us for anything, we could conclude that our lives have no importance at all. But scripture tells us that we were created to glorify God, indicating that we are important to God himself. This is the final definition of genuine importance or significance in our lives. If we are truly important to God for all eternity, then what greater measure of importance or significance could we want? And then Grudem goes on to say, This understanding of the creation of, of the doctrine of the creation of man has very practical results. When we realize that God created us to glorify him, and when we start to act in ways that fulfill that purpose... Then we begin to experience an intensity of joy in the Lord that we've never before known. When we add that to the realization that God himself is rejoicing in our fellowship with him, our joy becomes inexpressible and filled with heavenly glory. Is there one more uh, Grudem quote in there? Uh, 
wondering if my notes saved it a little different. So I just combined Grudem here. So if we ever deny our unique status in creation as God's only image bearers, we will soon begin to depreciate the value of human life And I added in brackets there, our spouse's life. Because remember, our marriage is also created in the image of God. It's it's the same thing here, okay? So I'm going to start that again. If we ever deny our unique status in creation as God's only image bearers, we will soon begin to depreciate the value of human life or our spouse's life. We'll tend to see humans merely as a higher form of animal We might see our husbands and wives as nothing more than some other kind of animal. No big deal. Just move on and get another one. They're just animals, right? And we'll begin to treat others as such. We will also lose much of our sense of meaning in life or marriage. Warren Wearsby wrote this awesome book, 50 People Every Christian Should Know. And when he was talking about Matthew Henry, he talked about Matthew Henry on his deathbed and how Matthew Henry said to a friend, it's in your notes, you've been asked to take notice of sayings of dying men. This is mine, that life spent in the service of God and communion with him is the most pleasant life that anyone can live in this world. This is the doctrine of the Imago Dei. How tightly connected our joy is as individuals to God's glory. When we are living a life that is all about bringing him glory, he works joy in our heart, incomparable, undescribable. It's the same thing with our marriages that are created in the image of God and that reflect the story of the gospel. When everything about our marriages is tethered to the tie that binds of God's glory, joy is infused into our marriages that is indescribable and brings great pleasure. In wrapping up, Savage points out this incredible doctrine of Imago Dei within marriage and that when Eve was brought as a helper for man to Adam. It was the the original language isn't that she's there to supply some needs and kind of help him out with, you know, his business, you know, and, and, you know, take care of the kids and I need someone to, you know, make me dinner and stuff. It's it's actually not in the original intents of the, the language. Okay. It's not wrong, okay, but it's just not the original intent, okay? The original language with helper speaks, and when you combine it with the Imago Dei, like I have it in your notes, the reason the solitary existence of man was not good is not because it forced the man to endure isolation and loneliness or because he would have to face the challenges of life without human assistance, but because, here it is in your notes, The man has been endowed with the divine image and hence with the divine capacity to empty himself sacrificially into another. 
if man has been made in the image of God to glorify God, and our God's glory was the cross, then how do we bring glory to God but by living a life that is daily crucified with Christ? It's what Tim Savage calls cruciform love. Now that might seem like out of this old stuff, like cruciform love, come on! Just tell my wife what she needs to do to make me happy, you know? Guys, I was in a rough spot with Lindsay a couple weeks ago, and I knew that I was in error, but I didn't know what to do. I still don't know what to do sometimes, you know? And, and I just got on my knees before the Lord, and I'm like, Lord, you got to show me where I'm in error here. And this phrase came from 10 years ago teaching this conference. I don't think of it much, but it was this phrase, cruciform love. Lord brought it to my mind. Cruciform love. You are not living out my design for you in laying down your life, your rights, your dreams, whatever. You got to lay all that down just like Jesus did for the betterment of your spouse. In that moment, I was not living out the Imago Dei. I was living out No, I want to like build up my own kingdom and I got a whole lot of rights and privileges and things that I need to like have Lindsay provide for me. Come on. And in that way, I was not being, allowing Lindsay to be my helpmeet. She's able to be my helpmeet and that she is there to help me live out God's intent for me as a man and that is for me to lay down my life for her. Seems a little backwards, right? I think I had it in your notes there. But uh, to put it succinctly, we marry for the good of our partner. If we're right in our understanding of the word help, it's in your notes, its meaning is the opposite of her to help me. It's actually so I can help her. A helper is one who receives our assistance and so helps us to reflect the image of God. Guys, that's deep. That's, that's hard. That's chew on that. You got to take it home. There's a reason I gave you notes to take home and consider. But mark that and ponder that. More than just our wife learning how to make really good biscuits and gravy. And don't get me wrong. That really helps me out. God put my wife into my life to help me display Jesus to this world. Through cruciform love. Jesus laid down his life for his bride, the church. How can I display that to the world? I need help. I need someone to lay my life down for. And there she is right there. Okay? I think we're pretty much done. Let me see what you got. Okay, perfect. Oh, Piper quote. Gotta have it. This is a good one. Okay. Where is it? Somehow my notes just didn't save. Oh, rip. Looks like I'm going to have to go back and do a little editing. Tatum probably went to my keyboard at home and I'm joking. All right, here we go. You guys ready? Close it on this. Use it to fan yourself real quick. The most ultimate thing that we can say about marriage is that it exists for God's glory. That is, it exists to display God. Now we see how.
Marriage is patterned after Christ's covenant relationship to the church. And therefore, the highest meaning and the most ultimate purpose of marriage is to put the covenant relationship of Christ and his church on display. That is why marriage exists. If you are married, that's why you're married. Anybody here married? Okay. Let's read that again. It exists to display God. Now we see how. Marriage is patterned after Christ's covenant relationship to the church. And therefore the highest meaning and the most ultimate purpose of marriage is to put the covenant relationship of Christ and his church on display. That is why marriage exists. If you are married, that is why you are married. We are motivated by this. We take seriously our vows till death do us part and substitute no word in its place. Staying married, therefore, is not about staying in love. It's about keeping a covenant. Till death do us part, or as long as we both shall live, is a sacred covenant promise. The same kind Jesus made with his bride when he died for her. Therefore, what makes divorce and remarriage so horrific in God's eyes is not merely that it involves covenant breaking to the spouse, but that it involves misrepresenting Christ and his covenant. Christ will never leave his wife. Ever. There may be times of painful distance and tragic backsliding on our part, but Christ keeps his covenant forever. Marriage is a display of that. That is the most ultimate thing we can say about it. Okay, so what you guys just went through is two sermons. I'm going to borrow this. There were a bunch of these. Oh, questions? Questionnaires? You don't have one now. I wrote up these really awesome questions. Um, I had a really good time with Lindsay kind of pondering and thinking about these questions. And we're going to take a little time. Not all of them. Some of them you're going to go home. This is homework that you and your spouse fill out together. Okay? Yeah. You guys are stoked about that. I know. But for some of them, let's just kind of brainstorm a little, okay? Oh, first word on this is a typo. If our immediate culture does... No, it is right. I thought it was supposed to be in our immediate culture. I bet. Clearly, I've read and reread this so many times, I know what I'm talking about. If our immediate culture, i.e. Primeville, design marriage... What would it look like in purpose and priorities? Okay, so think about that a little bit. Out of all that we've kind of learned, compare and contrast a little bit what Prineville's culture, they got to say what it was for. What are some things? What's the, what's the purpose of marriage in Prineville? Does anybody have any thoughts Lindsay, I'm going to have you come up here. Don't ask me why. This is a little bit of a Q&A slash conversation. Johnny, you on the camera, bro? 
Okay, so any thoughts? Just like, well, here, here's kind of what our culture thinks about marriage. And what do you think, Casey? You got to have a wife to make food. The brandings. Totally. It's actually what Lynn's, Lainey wants to be when she grows up. A rancher's wife who makes food for the brandings. But as hilarious as that is, it's probably true a bit in our culture. What else? And by the way, these aren't necessarily bad. Okay. Bad. What's that again? A tax write-off. Tax write-off. <laughs> Similarly, I have a friend who separated from his wife because his insurance would cover his daughter's open-heart surgery if him and his wife were separated, um, and that ended up leading to being a part of a factor in their divorce later on. So you guys kind of see how, like, oh, well, we're married for the tax write-off, or we're separated for the... You guys kind of see how that works? What about what else for Prineville? Any other just thoughts? Just like, man, when I think of our culture, someone said something? Love? Love. I just, I need someone to love me. You know, don't you want somebody? Okay. I just need someone to love me, right? I just need someone to pour into me, okay? So spend a little time this week and just think about, Okay, light of the most ultimate reason that we talked about tonight being the glory of God. It just that's that's probably new for a lot of us. Like that wasn't ultimate, but now we know from the Word that's ultimate. So, kind of what were the things for us that were there that robbed God of His proper place and made marriage an idol for us because it replaced the Lord and His glory? That's what an idol is: replacing God's glory with something else, okay? Now let's make it personal. Up to this point, what has been the purpose in your marriage? What has your marriage been built upon? And if that purpose has passed, or it's fulfilled, or appears that it'll never be fulfilled, why would you even remain married? Okay, so think about those things. I want you to think about what are some unrealistic expectations that you've had of your marriage. Husband toward the wife and wife toward the husband. What is the significance of the one flesh in marriage? Let's talk about that for just a little bit. What is the significance, I tried to write, of the one fleshedness in marriage? I didn't like it. Autocorrect didn't like that. What's, what's the big deal about that? Or what's so special about the one fleshedness? Does ever ponder that? Lindsay, what do you think? <laughs> she just like <laughs> warned me firmly yesterday. Don't put me on the spot with a weirdly worded question. I left out fleshedness. Yes. We talked about this yesterday, but then I was like, did he say something else? Like, you're wrong. No. So, 
say it again kind of with the so, gospel in mind like you're okay. formulating. So the Lord receives the church as his bride and they become one flesh and he does not separate himself from the church. Yeah. So they're one flesh. And so who who does that work that day? Was it bride, groom, pastor, marriage planner? Wedding planner, I guess, Jennifer Lopez, you know, who does that work? It's God that does the work. Why is the Lord, this is all in our question, why would the Lord be so zealous that that one fleshedness not separate? Anybody out there just want to think of that too? Why does he, why does he really care, you know? Because it's a covenant bond. That's awesome. So David was kind of a little bit pointing us to like the Abrahamic, Abrahamic covenant where, um, if you remember that, when the Lord made the covenant with Abraham, uh, he slaughtered an animal and right when they were going to make this covenant, he caused Abraham to fall asleep and the Lord just made the covenant it was based on the Lord. Like, no matter what you do, Abraham, I'm going to do this. You just fell asleep during covenant time. The covenant was done by the Lord. In the same way, when we go through a covenant, they kind of, David was saying, if you didn't hear him, similarly, they walked down the aisle or they did it in front of friends and they made, they passed through the covenant and made the promise and made an agreement with one another and sealed it with uh, the ring, you know, in front of friends and family. And it's a picture of the covenant of the Lord. And... Did God ever break his covenant promise with Abraham? And by the way, for some of you, that might seem so Old Testament far off, like I have no idea what he's talking about. Just so you know, that covenant promise with Abraham was that through Abraham's son or his seed, the whole world would be blessed through that son. And then he said, it doesn't even matter if you do it, Abraham, I'm going to do it. And if you're here today and you're a Christian, that seed is Jesus, and he blessed the whole world by forgiving us of our sins. And so what David's getting at, what David got at through talking about the covenant, is marriage is a reflection of the coming together of, Lindsay said it as well, Christ and the church, and that'll never separate. Like, Jesus will never separate himself. Piper just said it so emphatically. Never separate from his bride, ever. Okay, so that's why he's so zealous. He's like, you're representing me out there. How is the image of God important or relevant to marriage? I think we hammered that pretty good, but I want you to just spend some time and just, just could you get a pencil this week, get a pen, and just, just real quick get together. I know there's not a lot of time. Just get together and reflect and reconsider what the teaching was tonight. How does the command to be fruitful, multiply, and have dominion over every living thing spread God's glory across the world? And how is this a possibility or a reality in your marriage? Anybody have a thought on that? 
How does the command to be fruitful and multiply of dominion over every living thing spread God's glory across this world? Any thoughts? I've got a thought, but I sometimes I, I don't know. It's hard to hear, and you don't know if your thought's right. You guys remember as we're studying John, Peter would have a thought, and Jesus would be like, "No, not that." He's like, <laughs> "What? Do you have a thought on that?" I mean, just that you know, marriage is to bear the image of God, right? So marriage is a picture to the world of the gospel, and if we are to be the ones to share the gospel, our marriage literally takes that avenue of reflection, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, how is a way that our marriage? does multiplying and spreads that image across the world. In literal children. So we have been fruitful, we've multiplied, we have four children. You know, this is just one way. It's not the only way. We have four children. And what are we doing with our children? What do we do with our children to help? Yeah, so we're discipling our children, and Russell right now, like, he's taught in a middle school group, and he's preached the gospel to middle schoolers, he's a witness, you guys have heard him pray that he would be a witness to his friends, you know, and just every one of our children were like, man, here's the purpose, here's why you're created, now go out, now you guys have children, and you make a bunch of witnesses, and so on and so forth, and I was just kind of thinking a little bit about, like, the ranchers that I work with, you know, and the Hartfields, and the Teskeys, and the McKinnons, and when we're out the Barneys, and and the interesting thing about my relationship with you guys is we are, I'm witnessing two parts of this, in that you guys are ranchers, and so you're having dominion over the beasts of the earth while we're out there, so that's part of that Imago Dei, go out and be, uh, go out and have dominion over the beasts, so you're doing that, but you're also doing it with your family, which is an interesting thing. So you got like five kids or six kids or whatever, and they're all out there and they're on horseback and you guys are moving those cows and you're, but as you're out there, you're, you're having dominion over the beasts of the earth and, and you're also teaching your children about the ways of the Lord and how he's created and how he, and you're raising them up in the ways of the Lord. And so all of that is part of this um, creation mandate. That's just one way, you know, you might be a fisherman or you might be a carpenter and you're, creating things just like God is a creator and you're teaching your son how to use a skill saw and a, a nail driver or whatever, you know, and in all of that, you're, you're doing what God did. And then you're teaching your son to do what God did. And, and it doesn't just end on the physical stuff, but you then transpose it to be missional and to tell people about the gospel. So I know that that's, you guys are like, it's been an hour and a half or two hours, bro. Like you, I'm at the end. So. Any great thoughts on how wonderful that was, how I said that right there? Okay, cool. So that last part, how is this, on verse number six, how is this a possibility or a reality in your marriage? Think about your marriage. Think about your home. Think about what you do and what you like to do and and what what God's made you to be and transpose that. Just like um, the disciples were fishermen and he made them fishers of men. Or they were menders of nets, James and John, and he made them menders of men. And how is it that 
we're teaching our children how to live and how to be fruitful and how to multiply, but especially in a discipleship capacity to get the gospel out there into the world. Uh, how is marriage a reflection of God? Like you're like that mirror and just be real specific. How is your marriage a reflection of God now? Or is it a reflection of God? And if there's some repentance needs to be like, we're not reflecting the Lord, then just take the initiative, especially you husbands, and just get on the knees with your wife and just pray that the Lord would move in your lives and cause you to be that mirror that just reflects God's glory and his story to the world, okay? Uh, it's 8.05. Just real quick before we end, anybody have a question? Just want to give a moment for, for question and answer. Uh, just maybe as you were going through, you're like, ah, how does this work or what? Some of it's new, and you, you got to be careful with new stuff. If it's new, it's not true, okay? Like there's nothing new since the Bible's been written. But what a, a lot of what happens is that people take their marriage counseling on principles of the world, or they leave out the important verses in the New Testament about the gospel, and they just make up a bunch of like, um, practical stuff that you should just go ahead and go do, but they miss out on the foundational design of God in the whole thing. So um, it might be kind of new just because a lot of counselors and pastors miss these important points. But any thoughts or questions? And if you have one, oh, we don't have the wireless. Real loud and then I'll repeat it. So this is what it's like when you go to Brazil or Hungary and someone shares in the church and then someone translates it. So basically what we're going to have is a quick translation and a direct translation. So just that idea of our oneness reflects the oneness of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They never went to do what was for their own best interest, go off on their own way or their own plan and tell the Father to you know, just forget it. I'm going to do what I want this time. You know, there always was that deference. The, the son always said, not my will, but yours be done. The spirit came to testify of the son. You know, there was this oneness within the Trinity that causes, causes the world to go around, causes the plan of salvation to work for us, um, causes everything to work together in synergy. That word that was used tonight. Um, and so in the same way we can pray in our marriages that if we're separate, 
we got separate bank accounts, you know, we do separate hobbies and things. And it's not that there can't be a separate, but you know, if there's like, those are my things, my time with the guys and I'm just off and I never do anything with you and we don't have our thing. That's a dangerous thing. We need to be in prayer that God would make us walk in the oneness that he's already made us, you know? So I think that was somewhat of a translation of what Jess had to say. So, any thoughts on that? Or? Uh, no. Yeah. No, what I was going to say is um, one of the things that we were talking about yesterday was, um, was it yesterday? I feel like it's a little late. We'll see. Um, but we were talking about that this first one that maybe you haven't even known the purpose of marriage. And when, the, especially like the world, like there's a lot of people that get married, but they don't know the Lord. They don't know the creator of marriage. And I just feel like one thing that we wanted you guys to walk away with today was like, we have a purpose for our marriage. And God is the one that designed that purpose. He's the one because he created marriage. He gets the right to say what marriage and once you know the purpose of marriage, then you can start functioning in it correctly. So just keeping that, like, maybe solidified in your mind. Okay, the purpose of my marriage is to reflect God and reflect his glory. So that means that anything that I do within my marriage is going to reflect Christ. And, it, and like, again, answering the question that he said earlier about how it... Um, was it? It was like the the image bearer, so that we create children and we be fruitful and multiply. That's what I'm thinking of. It also can be fruitful and multiply in the way of there's a there are so many people who need Jesus who are married, and marriage is really hard sometimes, and it is a really good opportunity to testify of what Christ has done and to live out what Christ has done. It's like the it's like one of the greatest opportunities to walk out the gospel because there's not going to be anybody else that you're closer to that you're going to mess up with or that's going to hurt you, you know, on the other side that you get to forgive and love and walk in humility and all these things that the Lord uses to, like, sanctify us. Like, marriage is number one. We were sitting at breakfast yesterday on a little anniversary getaway, and uh, and I was like, Lindsay, what do you think? She started talking, and I'm like, I was like, oh, should I record her or type some of this? It was like, this is like could be in a book, and I've read a lot of books on the subject, and this wasn't in it, you know, and I was like, oh, it was just worded really well, you know, but she, she pulled this fork up from our breakfast at the River House the other day. And she goes, like this fork, you know, like, it's so strange looking, you know. And if you didn't know the purpose of what it was for, you know, you'd just be like, what is this thing? It's so bizarre, you know. And, um, you know, she kind of talked about, if you've seen The Little Mermaid, you know, I think Ariel finds a fork in a shipwreck or something. And she starts to, like, try to do her hair with it or something, you know. Or, you know, if, if any of you have been, like, broke down, you know, and it's like, oh, man, I got to change out this thing in my truck, you know, and all we have from our picnic is like this fork, you know, and so you're under the hood and you're like, you know, it's like, 
like that's not the purpose of this but if you know the purpose of it you're like oh it's got the prongs and it's got a little bit of like a spoon type shape and it, it was designed to help fit the orifice you know or the orifice you know just perfectly like this you know but we go to china and they've got chopsticks and you got these two sticks and you're like what's the purpose of this and you're like drumming with it you know or you're maybe i'll stab this thing you know it's like no like there's a perfect fit in your fingers to pinch and to scoop and it works really great Lindsay's like saying all this and i'm just like you're so hot right now no um (laughs) uh things you can only say in marriage couples classes you know um and so you know marriage is a creation of god divine design it's a tool to display his glory to the world and it's got pokey things you know and it's got smooth edges you know it's a little bit like heaven it's a little bit like hell you know or whatever you know and but the lord has ways that it can fulfill its design to display him to the world and and bring great joy to us so i know that this is a lot um write down some questions maybe for next week that you might have uh, we we can answer those next week as well so take your questionnaire home work on it uh take your notes home and i'm going to create a facebook page and just try to throw you guys in that that i'll have our gospel family series on it and it's even more in depth and if you ever want to take the time to listen to it you can go through that as well so if you're a glutton for punishment that's going to be the link for you and if you have an anonymous question that you want to ask just text it to Lori. yeah <laughs> but i'll still know your phone number and i'll know it was you Use a friend's phone. Hey, Joe, can I borrow your phone? Oh, my gosh, you wouldn't believe the things I've been through. All right, I'm going to pray for you guys, then I'm going to let you go. Thank you, Lindsay. You did so great. Here, come pray with me. This is a lot. Uh, It's a... Out of... And... uh, I'm sure that there's been like just the gears in the brains have stopped a long time ago. And we would just pray for um, just the work of your spirit to bring comprehension and to just help us to understand just those deep things. Just like Lindsay was saying, if they could just come away with just like three things, the Lord, these folks would just walk away tonight just knowing that. Marriage is a divine design of the sovereign God. That it was created for our glory, uh, for your glory, as it was made in the image of God. And so, Lord, bring out application from that in every home tonight. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. 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 God bless you guys. Have a great evening. Eat some of these snacks and get yourself some refreshments before you leave. Love you guys.